Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding and I'm a project manager and research affiliate at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University. For this podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor James Parker. Professor Parker is an assistant teaching professor and honours faculty fellow at Arizona State University. He earned his PhD in world history at Northeastern University in 2020, and he has since held posts at the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American and African Studies and the Texas Women's University. His research interests lie in the water histories of Eastern Africa, especially Kenya, and on using this history to interpret current environmental challenges in Kenya's arid and semi-arid landscapes. He has published research articles in the International Journal of African Historical Studies, the East African Review, and in History in Africa. And it is the latter publication which we are discussing in this podcast. It is entitled Ecologies of Development, Eco-Philosophies and Indigenous Action on the Tana River. And it was published last year. Professor Parker, thank you very much for taking the time to record this podcast. Firstly, I want to ask you, what drew you to the history of the Tana River? And what drew you to the way you've approached this history, which is rooted in an interpretation based on the concept of environmental justice? Sure. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me, Philip. It's a great honour to be on the podcast. So I guess I took quite a roundabout trip to this research, um, obviously growing up in England. Um really struck during my education by the nation's failure to really reckon with its imperial past, right? This is something that is the subject of ongoing interminable discourse on social media. Um, and I became particularly interested in the idea of development during grad school, I guess, as specifically in terms of how that term is used to like gloss over this kind of nefarious past, right? And kind of burying these abuses under the idea of benevolence, uplift, economic, social growth all of which are largely untrue in my mind. And so it was really only during my research at both the British National Archives and at the Kenya National Archives in Nairobi that the Tana River began to stand out as kind of a embodiment of all of these different problems. Most obviously, the river hosted the infamous Hola detention camp, which uh, was the site of a massacre of 11 prisoners during the Mau Mau emergency in the late 50s. Um, so it has a lot of no notoriety for that. Um, and I write about that, obviously, in the article very briefly. But I found it interesting that what is hidden during the discussion of that event is the detention camp is actually a development project. Um, the Turner River is seen as a site where the Kenyan colonial state can try and make money in this undervalued, allegedly underused landscape. And that's really why colonial attention was drawn to this place, right? It was seen as vastly underpopulated, vastly over-resourced, and really as a place where money could be made very, very easily. Um, that's, of course, not the case. And so the river strikes me as a really important demonstration of how colonial imaginaries are understood and kind of take place in this respect. Um, and I also think the Tana River is just like a really interesting place to study, right? So... Longest river in Kenya starts flowing from the foothills of Mount Kenya and then flows east, southeast into the Indian Ocean, right? So it goes from a very temperate, well-watered region through some of the most arid landscapes in the country before it reaches the coast. And this relationship between the river and like the arid surroundings, I think, makes it an interesting case for how development takes place in many ways. So how 
both colonial and post-colonial officials see arid landscapes as a place where more can be produced, right? This is an area where surplus production can take place outside of more heavily populated regions. But on the flip side of that, right, pastoral and riverine communities have lived there for generations, have very specific both cultural and economic relationships with the river for pastoral groups. This is a place where cattle, goats, etc., graze during wet season or dry season, sorry. And for rivering groups, this is where flood recession agriculture takes place. This is where trade takes place, fishing, all of these different things that all become embedded within cultural practice, right? So there is a very strong kind of paradox there between how the colonial state sees this allegedly wasted landscape and then how the people who live there actually use it and understand it. And so expanding the productive potential of the river in the form of cash crops becomes really central to colonial priorities there after 1945, right? And that's largely where my research kind of picks up. It's at that point you see an influx of investment into the region, specifically in this like middle portion um, that I talk a lot about. And there the state is really heavily interested in canalizing the river. So digging channels out of the bank into an irrigation scheme kind of a mile or two inland um because they see this as a way to create more consistent flow right the Tana river is it floods twice a year right so the level of flood and the level of flow are highly variable that variability is entirely at odds with the idea of capitalized agriculture and so so much of development work there is about making unpredictability predictable in some way so that it can be used. Specifically in this case, this is for cotton. That's the the major export crop. So again, we're replacing maize, rice, bananas, all of these kind of subsistence crops with something that can't be eaten, isn't going to be used by the people in the area. Um, so again, we see this kind of clash of colonial and local priorities. And this is really what reorients the nature of the local economy in the region after 1945. Um, but I also think that gets to the second part of your question, right, in terms of environmental justice. I, I've i said to a lot of people that I would have had the book about this out three years ago if I was just writing a narrative of how a development project failed. Um, and it did. It continues to fail, right, in its current iteration. But I don't think that's the interesting story here, right? Academically, at least, the idea that the empire is destructive, development is often a failure, somewhat passe, reasonably well held. But from an environmental and a rural history standpoint, I think we lack a little specificity on what that actually means, especially for local people, local environments, right? So it's not just that this development is economically inefficient, but what does that mean, really? And so I'm much more interested in delinking this very highly capitalized, very high highly commodified vision of water, of the river, from the substance itself and the local ecosystem, right? Because I think there's a tendency for us to apply our well-held ideological visions of resources onto a historical past, right? We understand these, we understand water, rivers by their use value, their exchange value, all of these types of things, with nature being separate from us. Um, that's a relatively recent historical phenomenon in colonial spaces like this. So I want to pick up on that, like the idea that um, the Tana River has kind of been exploited for the purposes of capitalism, that's kind of a very recent phenomenon. And you kind of point contrary to that, 
um, the idea that the Tana River should be considered instead a vibrant actor in its own right um, within Pokemo communities across its entire length. And I just wondered, what does this mean to consider a river such as the Tana a vibrant actor in history? And I suppose, how does it, does it challenge, like, I suppose, human-centric or even uh, capitalism-centric narratives of the past? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was putting this research together, um, I was particularly inspired by the work of like new materialist philosophers and academics like Jane Bennett, most notably, who really emphasize like the independence of the non-human world, right? And the, I guess, the agental capacity of the non-human world, um, which is referred to in these texts as vibrancy, right? Like the ability to act outside of how humans use these resources, basically. Um, and I think for an environmental historian, I think this is a really important way of looking at the past, right? So divorcing ourselves from just like, what did people do and what was the impact to how are actions dictated by the natural world and how does the natural world influence the course of human affairs? Um, so rather than an inanimate object, I really just wanted to give the river a role and a power in this research that actually mirrors its real life capacity to influence daily life along its banks, both for either the colonial or Kenyan state and for local Pokemo groups as well. So destructive floods, devastating droughts, these both play far more of a role in the region than any development officer ever could hope to, right? So by calling the Tana a vibrant actor, I really just wanted to drive home this point that the river is the key player in this story, regardless of our kind of human attitude towards nature as an entity destined to be controlled or something that is separate from us, right? It acts upon communities as much as communities act upon it, essentially. And I suppose that, that also speaks to an interdisciplinarity. And I suppose that kind of view that you kind of cited there doesn't come at all through the documents that you consulted to reconstruct this history. Um, so I was wondered, what could you kind of speak more to the sources, methods and disciplines you use to interrogate uh, this history, you suppose to with which you could reread the colonial archive on which you rely mostly for your primary source material? Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess we're all familiar with kind of the weakness of the colonial archive, right, in terms of reifying specific forms of power and rule and specific actions. Um, and I do fully believe that to be the case. But I think oftentimes, especially in the realm of environmental history, that's almost used as a get-out-of-jail-free card for people to just assume that there is, like, no value or no counter-narrative within the archive, right? So... Mm. I obviously do approach this in a highly interdisciplinary way, but this is fundamentally an archival history at the same time, right? It's the interdisciplinarity comes from how I interpret the sources. So I've been very, like I said, inspired by the work of new materialism, but also much more widely by African eco-philosophies, um, works by philosophers like Gufu Oba, Wakane Kovessa, others, um, both specific to Kenya and outside, which really emphasize the a more holistic way of imagining the world so rather than like we've already mentioned this human nature binary thinking about nature as like a key or the environment as a key player within the world and with its own set of 
capacities, rules, actions that we exist within and alongside, right? I think that is a really useful way to reread colonial archives in many ways, um, both in terms of thinking how the environment acts or how ecosystems act, um, as previously discussed, but also in kind of reimagining and rereading how local communities react to the onset of colonial rule, right? So it's very easy. If I were to take colonial archives at face value, I would believe that the communities of the Tana River were extremely lazy because they worked three months out of the year. That is kind of this narrative that is repeatedly thrown onto Pokemon groups over the course of 70 years, right? But this is a constructed narrative, right? And being able to think about how local communities engage with the environments more philosophically, we can kind of reread the archives in that respect, right? So rather than working three months a year because they're lazy, this is just a the natural course of life on the Tana River, right? Like working between the pulsation of the river, waiting for the floods to subside, distributing crops across different areas, as kind of a fail-safe for if one doesn't grow. All of these different things are characterized across colonial archives as inefficient, wasteful, time-consuming, irrational. But thinking about them more philosophically and through the eyes of the communities themselves um, kind of challenges that and urges us to think about how we understand human environment relations, right? And this is something that I, again, picked up from comes through both explicitly and implicitly from petitions from local communities, um, particularly in the ways that individuals fall foul of colonial law in terms of violating fishing regulations or boating regulations, cropping regulations. All of these things point towards a different environmental relationship, but they also fall into line with a lot of the early anthropological work done and in this region specifically by Pokemon intellectuals in the early 20th century. Um, and so thinking about how different crops are used, how they are anthrop anthropomorphized, um, things like that, I think provide an insight into how different communities understand things differently, right? Which is ultimately, as historians, what I think we should be trying to get at rather than just looking at how different ideologies are imposed on different spaces. So we do point to kind of a, a clash of different knowledge systems here. Um, I suppose then the following question, the following kind of in terms so a clash of knowledge systems in terms of how you can use that to interpret the archive and how an alternative knowledge system can help you to reread the, the colonial archive. But how did these knowledge systems actually clash on the ground during the colonial period in in in, in uh, Kenya um, and around the Tana River, when, where, and under what circumstances are the clashes between these knowledge systems thrown into sharpest relief? Um, and how does, I suppose, this knowledge interact with agency and with actions as well on the ground? Sure. Um, so I think this happens in two different ways, right? Which is actually reasonably separated um, temporally. So before 1945, this is largely an intellectual exercise. So colonial officials, surveyors, agricultural officers flock to the Tana River to understand how they can make it make money, right? They're very explicit about this. How can we redirect the river? 
how can we in fact stop the river flowing if it means we can make money um why are these people so wasteful right but all throughout this time communities up and down the river are largely just living their lives right there is very little colonial state in tana river district up until about 1945 there are very few officials it's actually notoriously one of the worst postings for british officials in kenya and so there's a lot of discourse in the archive about the wastefulness of local communities but it doesn't really lead to any clash particularly people are still producing and relating to the environment in the same kind of ways there is a religious tension with missionaries trying to stamp out what they see as kind of the paganism of local communities um especially in the way that rituals and taboos are applied to the environment specifically on what can be hunted what can be grown when things can be harvested how crops are redistributed all of these things are very I guess in the modern parlance, we would consider them very kind of like mutual aid strategies in terms of in ensuring that everybody on the river gets something, even in times of drought. Um, that's something that missionaries in the state are very keen to stamp out because it kind of runs counter to this like colonial individualistic society they're trying to impose. But again, I don't think there's too much material like day-to-day -day impact for communities before 1945. After that point, this starts to change pretty significantly, right? Um, with the arrival of more administrators and more money under the Colonial Development and Welfare Act, you see like a huge influx of agricultural officers, um, district officials, di district administrators, who are coming in and starting to like make plans and really starting to engage with people on the ground. Um, and that doesn't go down particularly well, right? There is a tension throughout the archives on behalf of local Pokemon communities, especially in the middle part of the river, between like wanting something from the state, saying like, you can come in and give us money and expertise broadly construed, but we want healthcare, we want education, we want agricultural extension to help our crops grow more bountifully. Like we will accept some degree of state intervention as long as it benefits us, right? On the other hand, the state, is largely disinterested in doing that for Pokemon communities, right? They are much more interested in the wider economic and demographic issues facing the colony at large, right? They see this as a site where dispossessed people in land can be resettled. They see the river as something that can be redirected to make money. And this is where this clash of knowledge systems really kind of comes into play. Because on the one hand, you have this highly modernist irrigation scheme that ends up taking anywhere between 50 and 200 acres of land on prime rivering land after 1953, 1954, with the people who are dispossessed by this, who are losing out on water, whose crops are being destroyed, and who are being forced into much more of this cash crop wage labor economy, kind of against their will. And the way this plays out is crime, essentially. So what I found in the archives basically is how local Pokemo production in the middle part of the river persists via the black market. So everything that was previously being grown in terms of bananas, maize, green grum, all of these other kind of rivering crops, as well as fish and other wares, that trade doesn't die despite the best intentions of the colonial state to make this like a cash crop region. It just starts to happen illegally. It happens uh, underground, it happens under the cover of night, that happens by boats, by road. And this is kind of like the main 
adaptive response for villagers during this time, right? In terms of maintaining an existing way of life that is materially similar to previous ways of life and previous knowledge systems, but is fundamentally in response to the arrival of colonial capitalism and colonial rule, right? So rather than one dispossessing the other, it drives adaptive responses. So villages can kind of pick and choose kind of how they want to associate with irrigation and with agriculture kind of on their own terms. So as after the emergency ends in 19, I mean, 1960 in this region, local tenants are allowed, Pokemon tenants are allowed onto the Tana River irrigation scheme at last. People take up those plots very willingly because they see this as land where stuff can be grown, they can make money, but they also don't give up what they already have. So what we see is kind of a hybrid result of an existing way of exploiting the river and relating to the river alongside this much more colonial quote-unquote modern way of engaging with it as well and kind of people picking and choosing based on climatic conditions economic conditions all of these types of things that's really interesting and so it's so it's also very interesting the 1945 kind of inflection point you point to here in some ways, this change from 1945 is representative of kind of a, a broader shift in African history towards so-called development under colonial rule that followed World War II. But as you point out in the article as well, the colonial state had been thinking about developing the Tana River since at least the 1930s. And it wasn't then until the like 19, late 1940s and the 1950s that they started to take action on this. And I wondered if you could kind of, apart from this kind of shift towards development after World War II in um, British colonial thinking, to what do you attribute this, I suppose, about 20 year delay? And I suppose, what does this tell us about the nature of colonial rule in Kenya and colonial engagements with the environment in Eastern Africa? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say, so I don't talk about this specifically in the article, but I get into this in my forthcoming book. But I think the Turner River is a really instructive case of like the idea of delayed colonialism in general. There is everything that goes on, especially around Hola, um, is always 20 years behind where both the colonial and post-colonial state wants it to be. Right. So starting in the 1920s, you have people arriving, especially officials from India and Egypt, coming in and saying, well, the Turner River should be the Kenyan Nile, right? Like we should repurpose this for cotton production, for damming, for irrigation, ultimately for hydroelectricity. And this is like, this is the discourse about the region, but it really doesn't mirror any reality in policy, right? So I think more widely in British imperialism, this empire on a shoestring idea is largely attributed to the impact of the economic depression after 1929, right? So balanced budgets, colonial states being kind of budget neutral, not taking anything from the metropolitan state, really making their own money and spending that. But that is kind of like the modus operandi for colonialism, British colonialism in the first half of the 20th century, right? And ultimately, there is no way to make a balanced budget in the Tana River before 1945. All of the kinds of development that happen afterwards, especially with canal projects and the irrigation scheme, they are vastly expensive, like huge sums of money required to dig canals, lay out irrigation schemes, do all the surveying, hire labor, all of these kinds of things. 
And simply, there isn't enough money being produced in Kenya at this time, right? So the settler states, obviously Kenya is a settler colony. White European settlers are just laughably incompetent at making money. Um, they have these vast tracts of land that they are given on extremely long leases on the idea that they can turn these into plantations, right? Worked by dispossessed individuals and families um, where they can make money either growing food crops, export crops, uh, feeding cattle, all of these kinds of things. This is the settler dream, right? Um, problem with that is they have no idea how to do this. Um, they have all of the capital in the world, but they are mostly wealthy, for the most part, wealthy Englishmen who have never farmed a day in their life. They have people to do this back home. And although they have people to do this in Kenya too, because they stole their land, it just doesn't work the same. And so there is very little taxable income, taxable revenue for the state uh, in the first half of the century. And this means that money can't be spent on relatively speculative schemes in eastern Kenya where as far as they're concerned nobody lives and there's nothing worth doing right and so the Tana River acts as kind of an empty vessel where the colonial future can be imagined where like oh one day we'll have more money and we'll have more people um, and then one day we'll finally make something of this land that the indigenous communities are just wasting right and they're proved correct in the end, right? So 1940, the Colonial Development and Welfare Act is passed for myriad reasons. After 1945, colonies are asked to produce their own development plans on how they're going to use this money. And so the Tana River becomes baked into this like new Kenya plan after 45, specifically in terms of revenue making projects, um, producing cash crops like cotton, initially rice as well, that can be exported into the global markets, that can earn either dollars or sterling, that can benefit both the Kenyan economy and the British economy at large, right? Rebuilding after the war. Um, and so I think really it's the death of this self-sustaining economic narrative that Kenya is trying to uphold before 45, that really allows development broadly construed to take place in Tana River, because that's finally when economic pressure is released. There are hundreds of thousands of pounds flowing in specifically to the idea of making money, however, that can take place, especially in regions that are deemed underutilized already, right? Underpopulated, under-resourced, arid regions that are seen as kind of blank canvases where development can take place. And I think that's really where this narrative starts to kind of shift over time. And I think that's actually indicative of Eastern Africa more generally. You see similar kinds of things happening in Tanzania, obviously, um, elsewhere, West Africa as well. Um, so I think there's a fundamental metropolitan shift coming from London, but I think there's also a fundamental shift in the idea of how economic exploitation of the colonies has to take place in the modern era as well. We want to pick up one bit on on that, just to try and get an insight into kind of local perceptions here as well. So th this development project from 1945 is very much geared to export global markets um, to global colonialism as well. And I wondered, just because with the Indian Ocean World podcast and we're trying to think about things on a kind of a macro regional frame sometimes, um, how did people living along the river 
think about connections to the wider world as well, whether culturally, commercially, or even environmentally. And how, did, they, did they have similar or different perceptions or um, understandings of the wider world to the kind of colonial administrators who largely saw it through, I suppose, markets? Sure. That's, I mean, that's a great question. And one, again, that I think is really important in understanding this region, right? So colonial officials from 20, 1920 onwards see the Turner River as just kind of this space divorced from the rest of both the colony and the Indian Ocean world, right? As just being a place where like people row their canoes up and down the river selling fish and selling crops. That isn't the case, right? There's a bunch of archaeological evidence dating back a thousand years of um, Chinese pottery, um, wares from the Indian subcontinent as well, demonstrating the Tana River's centrality in this much wider regional economic ecosystem, right? That we are all, I imagine listeners of this podcast are like pretty like fundamentally familiar with, right? So the East African littoral and its connections to South Asia, the Far East, um, the Middle East as well. And obviously there is a political connection with the Kenyan coast and kind of Oman, the Swahili world more generally, that the Tana River is really like fundamentally baked into as well, both politically and economically. And so I think it's fair to say that like communities in the region are very cognizant of this like much wider economic and social world, right? This isn't just an island as viewed by the colonial state. Um, this is like a fundamental like connective node in this much wider system that we talk about. But something interesting happens again in this kind of post-war era, um, especially with Indian independence straight after World War II and then um, Myanmar following that, in the, the British colonial state in Kenya tries to rewrite the river's connections to the Indian Ocean world. So having spent 40 years crafting this narrative of this kind of like blank island space divorced from the world, they start to say, well, you know, we need this region to basically pick up the slack from what we've lost elsewhere in the world. Um, and so I talk in the article very briefly about how the initial genesis of the irrigation scheme on the Tana River is actually a global rice shortage driven by instability um, in India and Indonesia and um, all of these other rice producing nations in the Indian Ocean world. Um, and so the state says, well, you know, this is a economic ecosystem. This is an economic world rooted on the Indian Ocean. And so Kenya needs to basically pick up the slack this place has for far too long been locked out of this world, which isn't true. And so we need to invest in kind of rebuilding this connection, right? But I think that in itself is interesting because it demonstrates kind of the, like the backseat that Kenya takes in the British idea of the Indian Ocean. Like it's only really aware of its centrality to this economic world when the rest of that world is slowly disappearing from its grasp, right? Um, and so it's like, oh, maybe we should take advantage of this kind of situation, right? So rather than being proactive, they're very reactive in responding to the shortage, driving a lot of like short-termist developmental thinking, investing in rice, like the scheme goes horribly wrong, doesn't work, huge waste of money, destroys a bunch of farmers' land, um, purely because they're trying to react to something going on elsewhere in the Imperial Indian Ocean, right? And I think 
there's a really interesting cognitive dissonance there between how central this river is to that world and how divorced Britain sees Kenya from that world, right? And then tries to like rebuild into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, really interesting. All right, I'm gonna. That's the last history question I'm gonna ask. Um, the the final one I was what like one of the really interesting things about your article actually that I really like is that obviously you're mostly focusing on um, well mostly history. It's published in History in Africa for for starters, but you do bring it all the way up to um, the 21st century and to as recent as the 2022 election in the general election in Kenya. I just wanted this basic question. This is clearly because it's still these um, development projects from the mid 20th century have got a long lasting legacy, clearly, and they're still relevant today. Just um, where are we now in the Tana River? Um, what um, what does it look like now in terms of development, um, colonial development, post-colonial development and their legacies? Um, and what might it look like in the future, especially under um, predictive global warming scenarios? Sure. And that's like a really important part of both this article and this research, I think, for a number of reasons that kind of I'll get to, right? So starting with the very specific tonne irrigation scheme that I talk about in the article. Um, as I mentioned in that, that project dies in 1989. Predictably, the river disappears. Uh, well, it doesn't disappear. It changes course, uh, leaving the scheme high and dry. It's restarted. It restarted 10, 15 years ago now with um, a bunch of Arab Development Bank funding and a bunch of international benefactors. And I think that in itself is instructive, right? The fact that this failed scheme that as far as I can tell through the archives, has only ever made money for two of the last 50 years, 50 to 60 years. Um, oh. Always a drain either on the colonial coffers or the Kenyan state. Um, basically, the Kenyan government is paying annual grants and aid throughout the 70s and 80s um, to basically balance the books for this. And so by all measures, this project is a failure. Um, it works for some people, some people make money, but it doesn't really achieve anything that it sets out to do. So why is why is it back? And I think this ties into this much wider question of like the present and future of the Tana River, right? Because the Tana is still this empty vessel where foreign partners and the Kenyan government can apply their visions of the future onto this landscape, right? Local politicians, foreign corporations are once again flocking to the river for irrigation, biofuel, agriculture, ranching schemes, all of these kind of like major land hungry and water hungry ventures that are designed to, generally speaking, feed the world rather than feed Kenyans. Mm. Um, and so what we're seeing, like, as water levels decline because of shifting rainfall patterns, rising temperatures, there is a very tangible riverine impact of climate change already on the Tana River. And this coexists with increasing annexation of riverine land and riverine water by foreign corporations. And this obviously leads to competition for the remaining water and land, right? I'm really hesitant to avoid talking about conflict in this respect, because I think this that's kind of a highly reductive relationship to just assume that this competition will lead to conflict. But as competition increases, it's a lot easier for politicians and development organizations to kind of weaponize this kind of scarcity 
and say, you need to hand over your land and like, we'll give you jobs and food and water. Um, but you need, you need to sell out your neighbors um, and we'll, we'll make it worth your while. And local government, the county government in Tana River is kind of on board with a lot of this. The rhetoric around 2022 in terms of trying to get votes from local communities was surrounding these same kinds of extractive development programs saying, we're going to bring more irrigation to the Tana River and we're going to we're going to process cotton on sites rather than exporting it. All of these very extractive, very consumptive environmental relations that have spelled disaster for people for the last 65, 70 years. And I think this really demonstrates the inability of development organizations and politicians to escape this highly, highly capitalist vision of the environment in many ways, because I think there are multiple more sustainable ways to think about this world right so in that respect i think the history of the tana river is just like a real big blinking alarm about the ability of foreign capital and its partners to actually solve global problems i think there's a lot of analogies here and similarities with the ongoing carbon credit scandal across east africa where land is being annexed to keep trees alive whilst dispossessing people um like global south landscapes aren't just places where we can offset our own consumption or outsource our own food needs, right? Because um, ultimately these schemes are playing God with people's lives. Landscapes like the Tana are really active sites filled with a plurality of people that I think have to be su supported and elevated in the face of these threats. Something that I'm trying to do with this article is thinking about how different ways of imagining this riverscape through the eyes of historical environmental philosophy can lead to much more sustainable relationships right so rather than just viewing this as a place to be exploited and used actually thinking about how these things can be used to benefit everybody but in a way that is actually much more sustainable rooted in like cultural relationships and really like deeply rooted social relationships to the environment instead, rather than just viewing it as something to be kind of taken, right? Because ultimately, I think that kind of development is much, much more erasive in that respect. And that's a very powerful note to finish the discussion of your article on. Thank you very much for discussing that. Before I let you go, though, I just want to ask uh, one final question. And that is, what are you working on now? You've uh, alluded to your book manuscripts a couple of times. Maybe you can give us some more details about that or let us know about anything else you're um, working on that we might be able to see, read or hear about uh, in the near future. Sure. Uh, so my book manuscript is currently under review, at Michigan State University Press. Um, and there's a lot of similarities to this article. I see this article as kind of a proof of concept. Um, but the book goes into much more detail, both about the 20th century history of the Tana River, but also compares it to another river in northern Kenya, the Wasoniro, which kind of flows similarly from Mount Kenya through a much more arid landscape into the north, and how white settlers and post-colonial agricultural partners have willingly removed that river from pastoral regions in the pursuit of cash crop uh, profits. And kind of drawing attention to how arid spaces are characterized under this kind of extractive development logic. Um, so all things being equal, you should see that at the end of 2024, I would hope. 
Um, but I'm also starting to move forward on new research linked actually to carbon credits and carbon offsetting in East Africa and thinking about the colonial ancestry of land protection as an environmental tactic, right? So thinking about how landscapes, how the use of rivers and forests have been aggressively racialized by colonial and post-colonial partners to justify annexation and dispossession and how that has become increasingly commodified during the era of accelerating industrialization, climate change, all of these things. So again, tying a very current problem to a much longer colonial lineage is kind of where I see my work going at this time with the goal of hopefully informing ongoing development discourse in both the academic and non-academic world. Wonderful. It's really interesting, really interdisciplinary research that is very much needed. Um, thank you very much for that. And I look forward to seeing your work on that too. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for your research uh, and for discussing it uh, with me for this podcast. I also want to thank Sandy Vreeman for organizing and producing the podcast. And of course, the listener, thank you for streaming and or downloading. Uh, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this has been the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 